All right, so as you think about the Old Testament, for those of you who are familiar with it, think about your favorite Old Testament story. Is there one that just rises to the top? I'll ask my kids this at times, and they always have kind of a, a, a fun answer. Uh, it's usually the common ones. Once in a while, they'll think of some bizarre story. I'm curious how that story that might be in your mind, how it might point to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his birth, and his ministry, and his death, and his resurrection, and his royalty. Every story in the Old Testament gives us a picture of the future Messiah, Jesus Christ. Everyone does. Now, now some stories are, are so specific that you would say within the broader context that story tells us and, and points to and foreshadows Jesus Christ. But some stories are, are just dripping with the imagery of our Savior. For instance, in the Garden of Eden, if you recall, when Adam and Eve had sinned, God killed an animal to provide clothing. And that's a picture of the Messiah's future sacrifice for our sin. Or, Adam, or, or Noah and the ark, in which you have one man's obedience save the human race. Well, that reminds us of the Messiah's obedience. Christ lived without sin in order to die for our sin. You have Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, wherein God provides that ram in the thicket as a substitute for sin, or for the sacrifice, I should say. You have Moses and, and the Israelites that are walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, and it's a picture of the Messiah opening up a way for us to walk from death to life and victory. You've got David and Goliath, in which a man kills the impossible to kill giants, and it portrays for us the Messiah's victory over Satan and death. You've got Elijah. He brings a boy to life. I mean, it reminds us of the Messiah's ability to do heavenly signs and wonders. And then lastly, Jonah. He's in the belly of the whale, right, in that fish. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And he's in there for three days. And then Jonah eventually gets spit out to fulfill his mission. And it reminds us of Christ being buried and uh, on the third day, then rising. Well, over and over again in the Old Testament, you see these different pictures and these different stories that foreshadow the Messiah. In fact, a good practice for you as a parent of children in your home would be to help your children see these, these connecting points there. Uh, and, and whether they're little or you know, still, still under your tutelage of some sort. Help them to see, draw those connections. In fact, if you're struggling to see what those connections are, talk to your group leader, talk to a pastor. Let's, let's see that. It's good for us. Well, today we're gonna look at the Old Testament's portrayal of the, of the Messiah. But instead of looking at these bigger stories, we're gonna look at specific statements in which God used these men, these prophets, to declare these things that would be fulfilled in the Messiah specifically at the birth of the Messiah. Prophecies are specific statements made that might immediately relate to the sermon that's being preached in that moment by the guy who is saying the words, but they definitely and more fully relate to a future fulfillment. Did you know that there are at least 55, and there's, there's far more, but there's a, there's a, there's a, a solid list there, 55 prophecies about Jesus Christ and and even specific ones about the Messiah's birth. And I've read through so many of these, and God has drawn my attention to six for us to look at. Six different prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ, and there's several more, but these stand out among the others. So, six Old Testament prophecies about the birth of Jesus Christ. 
Number one, the Messiah would be born from the tribe of Judah. Right, so the first prophecy is Judah. When Jacob, if you remember this story, you have Jacob, the father, and he has um, 12 sons and a daughter, and then he has one of the sons named Joseph, and Joseph is the one who has a coat of many colors, so that Jacob. Jacob was pronouncing blessings on all his sons at the end of his life, and he said this about his fourth son, Judah. In Genesis 49, 10, he said, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. There were tens of thousands of babies born to the people of Israel, but only one tribe of those 12 were chosen as the lineage for the Messiah. Luke 3 retells the story of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In verse 33, he relates it to Judah, and then he keeps going and takes it all the way back to Adam in the garden. So Luke 3, I know that section of the genealogy, it's quick to just, or it's natural to just read past it, but if you work through the names, you'll see it work connecting all the way through this kingly order. Interestingly, Judah was not the firstborn son of Jacob. There was first Reuben, and then Simeon, and then Levi, and then Judah. You know, you'd almost expect if there was going to be a, a royal bloodline that it would be the firstborn son, but it wasn't. It was Judah. All these different kids that Jacob had, but it was Judah that he said, through this son will be the scepter. Now, Judah did some pretty detestable sins in his life. It's, uh, it's a little bit of a perplexing scenario that he was chosen. It's possible that Jacob was moved to declare Judah as the one who would have the king in his line because it was Judah who was the brother that urged that Joseph not be killed but be sold to slave traders. Awful uh, alternative, but I guess better than the first option. And it was also Judah who offered himself in the place of the youngest son, Benjamin, when there was a silver cup discovered in Benjamin's supplies. And Judah pleaded saying, hey, send, you gotta send Benjamin back home. Uh, I'll, take, I'll take his spot. So perhaps it was Judah's courage in these unique moments. Regardless, Judah's life reveals a lot of scandalous behavior. And in many ways, this reminds us of the scope of God's mercy for us. We are all in, needs of, uh, all in need of the saving Messiah to be born and God's grace for us because we have all sinned against God. I look at Judah's life and I think, you're a mess, dude. And then I you know, look in the mirror and think, well, I'm kind of a mess too. I didn't do those specific things, but all sin is still guilty before God. So the first <clears throat> declaration we have is that the Messiah would be born from the tribe of Judah. So of all the different tribes there are, and all the different kids going to be born in all the different tribes, only those from Judah would be part of the royal line, and Jesus was. So that's the first. Secondly, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So not just born of the tribe of Judah, but a specific location that this child would be born in. Micah 5.2. It's kind of a famous, famous prophecy because it's specifically describing this. It says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathath, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you 
will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This was after the birth and the royal reign of King David. And this was, say, 700, 800 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Micah spoke these words. And Luke 2 tells us of the story in which, out of kind of seemingly nowhere, the Roman Empire, or emperor says, let's have a census. He declares that everyone has to return to their hometown. So Joseph and Mary, they travel about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Luke 2, 4 tells us the story. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. So it is in this town that they arrive. All the Airbnbs are booked. There is no room in the inn. Mary had to give the crunchiest mom birth of all. She was in a stable with animals. Put her own kid in a manger. Put that on Instagram, right? No one's even doing that. And here she is experiencing this. Now, the uniqueness of this prophecy should not be overlooked. The Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. We know this as far as the location. But remember, Joseph and Mary didn't live in that town. So here she's been, she's been pregnant this whole time, uh, ready to you know, pop pretty soon. And now the order comes, we gotta travel. I, I don't know how much planning would have been involved, but let's just assume they already had their home like settled. They probably already had, all right, we're gonna be in this spot or with the, you know, wherever it is. All this is all prepared for the birth of Jesus in Nazareth. And then the order comes, we gotta travel to Bethlehem now and the timing of that. So she's very pregnant. Normally she would not be traveling far distances, but now they get this decree. They gotta go. God was gonna get his son in Bethlehem one way or another. <clears throat> now I've heard some people question if the New Testament characters intentionally tried to fulfill certain prophecies in order to force, I don't know, the, the narrative about Jesus. And this single prophecy dispels the myth that they were forcing it because we all know that a woman who's about to give birth has her birth plan figured out. She's not gonna be traveling 90 miles on the ancient roadway system, right? You're not in a cush car or something. You're, no, you don't even wanna drive in a car <laughs> 90 miles at that point. And here she is having to go all that path and that whole way. And she cannot anticipate the exact day for her labor pains and her delivery. All that uh, you, can, you can estimate, but you don't actually know. And so Jesus' birth in Bethlehem was not a coincidence. It was providence. God is sovereign over every single detail of our lives, even the town we are born in. And in this case, we see this with the Messiah. Well, there's a third prophecy. So, okay, so first you have Judah. Secondly, you got Bethlehem. Third, the star, the brilliant star at the Messiah's birth. Numbers 24, 17 has this awesome verse. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the, head, the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. This image of a rising star and that language of a star was a common phrase in the ancient Near East to describe a ruler or a champion. And in fact, we even use that language today a little bit when we talk about somebody who's a rising star. So it's a, it's a familiar sort of language. But what makes this specific prophecy unique is not 
I would say this, this verse already would be applied to Jesus anyway because he is the ruler. So we would say, okay, so the star and that language of a star and star in heaven and the, the, uh, the connection to just a ruler because we see this connected in a few other passages. But what makes this unique is there was literally this astronomical event that occurred at the birth of Jesus Christ with a star. It was like, wow, this is one of those moments where there's a prophecy and then God uses the play on words of a star and gives a literal demonstration of this at the birth of Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen in all sorts of prophecies, but it does in this case. So here you have this event with the birth of Jesus Christ and it caught the attention of the Magi who brought gifts. All right, so Matthew 2, 1 through 2 describes it this way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east, they came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born of the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So the famous star, the celestial signal celebrating the birth of the Messiah and it was a fulfillment of this prophetic statement. Not only was the Messiah, a kingly star because he was ruler, but God used a star in the sky at this time. Since we're discussing the Magi, let's look at the fourth prophecy. And this would be gifts, gifts brought to the Messiah. Psalm 72, 10 through 11. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. The Christmas story famously tells of the Magi who brought those three presents, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And it's recorded in Matthew 2, verse 11. We're not told how many distant kings traveled, but the leading assumption is three Magi, since there were three gifts, and tradition tells us that their names were Casper, Melchior, and Belshazzar. So Matthew 2, 11, it describes this scene where there is worship and there is honor and there is a, a, a bowing down before the Messiah King. Listen to the language here. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. That's a, such a familiar story. It's easy to... I don't know, just let it pass by. But it's a fascinating little moment where you have this baby, probably a toddler by now, just playing, walking, spitting everywhere. And then here they are. I don't mean that like irreverently. It's just, this is what toddlers do. And then, and then these three or others show up and they're like, this is, a, this is the king. Proven by this star, we were brought here. And here are these precious uh, gifts for this Messiah. And they present them to to Jesus. So that's the fourth one there. So we got Judah, Bethlehem, and then the, uh, the star and gifts. Number five, the Messiah's life would be threatened by a kill order. And th- this is interesting, and uh, I'll, I'll read it. Matthew 2, it, it describes the story in three verses, and it speaks for itself. And verse 16 says this. When Herod realized 
that he had been outwitted by the Magi. Okay, so, because Herod said, all right, hey, go, get, go see the little baby, and then after you do, tell me where he is, right? Because, you know. okay, so they didn't do that. <clears throat> These wise men were wise enough to know not to do that, right? Like, if they didn't do that, then they, you know, they don't deserve the name wise men if they were to tell Herod where the kid was. So when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 15, in which this is the statement. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. And... and refusing to be comforted because they were no more. You know, this evil act stirred by Satan in the heart of Herod and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing through Luke, we know that the words spoken to Jeremiah or through Jeremiah at this time, they were about the anguish surrounding the Messiah's birth. Christmas is a joyful and it's a celebratory time, particularly for Christians of all people, because we we tie it not to, say, Santa and presents and stuff, but to the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, I mention this heartbreaking prophecy because it's a profound reminder that Satan is a murderer, and and the fruit of of his work is death. The reason we suffer and that we struggle and that we even die, it goes back to Satan's deceit in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, the reason we need our Messiah's arrival at the birth and we need his atonement at the cross is to vanquish death and provide a means for eternal life. And so... Yes, this is, the, this is the saddest of the prophecies that I'm mentioning today, but it helps us. If you have lost a loved one around Christmas time, there's this personal emotion that you can feel with those mothers there in uh, Bethlehem who lost their sons at the hand of... of, of Herod. And, um, and that, that sting of loss reminds us of the Messiah, Jesus, reminds us of his need and, um, and the blessing of what he came here to do. Um, Let's move on to the sixth prophecy here. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14 has one of the most famous prophecies about the birth of the Messiah. It says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, if you read Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8, you see that King Ahaz is a king of Judah. He's surrounded by armies. He's about to get just crushed, totally just stomped. And Isaiah shows up and says, no, you're not. 
actually. The Lord has said, and the, and the phrasing is, it will not take place, it will not happen, and a few other things. This is verse seven. And then he says, and a sign to prove to you that you're not gonna get demolished by these armies is that a baby will be born to a virgin. Now the same wording with virgin would be young woman. If you keep reading, when you get to chapter eight, it says Isaiah and his wife make a baby and they name him the longest name in the Bible, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, right? Now that's a name. And based on a pretty sim simple and, and, and um, holistic understanding of this, it seems like Isaiah's saying, hey, uh, we're, we're uh, a sign that you're not gonna get crushed is uh, my young wife, she's gonna have a baby. And this, this will be a sign to you. Well, then, and that's what happens. And then uh, Ahaz you know, survives, everything's great. Well, you fast forward now to the New Testament and you see a greater fulfillment of that story with the, uh, with the woman with Mary. Now in her case, she is a virgin and the language used in the New Testament conveys that more directly than the Old Testament. And so the New Testament story reveals it this way. Matthew 1, 20 to 23. It says, Joseph, son of David, this is the angel speaking to him. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, this is verse you know, 7, 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, in the same way that the Lord was with King Ahaz and the nation of Judah, so the Messiah's birth proved that God was with the nation of Israel in this moment, and that God is with us today, and he is within us today by the atoning reconciliation on the cross and our response of belief to that truth. All right, so there you have six Old Testament prophecies. You got the Messiah had to be born from the tribe of Judah. He had to be born in Bethlehem. There would be a star. There would be magi with gifts. There would be the Herod, uh, Herod's kill order to stop this and that the baby would be born from a virgin. There's a few others too, but I'm not gonna focus on these. How, how do these prophecies encourage our faith? Well, they reveal that God's plan is at work. His heavenly plan and all the details he's got orchestrated, they're at work and nothing can stop them. We take great comfort in knowing that God is orchestrating details in this world across the whole spectrum. Huge things from redemption for the world to very specific, unique things like our daily needs that are different for me, that they are for you, and so on and so on. God knows what will happen in perfect accordance to his will. And so that encourages us. Now also, these prophecies provide evidence for God's truth. You know, if you're into math and statistical improbabilities, you would recognize that having all these different prophecies lined up for one person is impossible or improbable. And there you have the wonderful declaration that Jesus is true, that the message of the gospel is true. It's God's truth. He does exist. His promises are real. And this stuff isn't coincidental. It confronts our doubts and it does force us to respond. Will we continue in denial or response with belief. For somebody who would say, well, these, uh, these are great fulfillments of the prophecies, but uh, 
you know, what am I to do with that? I'd say, well, what, what do, how do you deny what they, what they show? Jesus is who he said he is, and he did what he said he would do. Because these prophecies were fulfilled with Jesus' birth, they also helped his followers when it comes to his death and his resurrection and the prophecies surrounding that. Most of the Old Testament describes prophecies of the crucifixion of Christ. Isaiah 53 is um, quite famous. And so his followers could anticipate that he would fully satisfy those prophecies as well, even though when you read the gospel accounts, it looks like they didn't really have a clue what was happening. But in hindsight, it started to all make sense. And then you have the road to Emmaus and Jesus is explaining his prophecies to his two followers and then it started to all click. Well, you have all these different prophecies that have happened. Many have happened. But did you know that there were still some prophecies about Jesus that have yet to happen? The ones about his return, the ones about his restoration of all things. So what we can do as Christians is we can say, hey, you know, because he satisfied these prophecies about his birth, because he fulfilled these prophecies about his death and his resurrection and his ministry, all the different things he would do in his ministry, we can, with full assurance, look at the prophecies that have yet to happen and say, these will happen. And someone would say, well, how do you know? Or maybe your own doubts. It happens for me at times. How, how do you actually know these? Like, is it actually gonna happen? Sometimes things seem pretty dire. Sometimes things seem like it's just not gonna work out. And you can look back and use the evidence of the historical account to help you to say, no, this, this will happen. This is who our God is. He is true to his covenant promises and he is the same yesterday as he is today. So today's message is a marvelous encouragement for us that our savior, he is the legitimate Messiah. He is the lawful king of kings. He's worthy of our belief and he's worthy of our worship. And this is who we remember this Advent season. Let me circle back to John 8, 12. I started with this and I'll, I'll uh, end with it too. Trenton, you and the team can come on up here wherever they are. I, I, I ran through this real quick, so they're probably eating snacks or something. All right, John, John 8, 12. It says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. During this Christmas series, we're gonna study the eternal light of the world. This light is a person, and all who follow him will have the light of life. I want you to challenge yourself. Will you commit to following the light of the world this Christmas series? We're gonna sing a lot of songs. A lot of them are familiar and famous songs, um, the ones that are Christmas hymns. And all of them remind us of the true light of the world. I encourage you not to just sing those songs and allow them to sound nostalgic, but really ask yourself, am I following this light of the world this Christmas, ser- this Christmas season? Let me pray for us.